This is the E-Commerce Brain Trust, a podcast about building momentum online for established consumer brands. Join our hosts and their expert guests for high-level conversations about e-commerce strategies, trends, and innovations. Access our Brain Trust and boost your brand's e-commerce potential. Welcome to the E-Commerce Brain Trust podcast. I'm your host, Kiri Masters, and today I'm joined by Doug Stevens. Doug Stevens is an international best-selling author and global advisor on the future of retail and consumer behavior. Doug is also a featured columnist for The Business of Fashion, a wonderful publication, and his latest book, Resurrecting Retail, came out on April 13, and Doug is here to speak with us about the book. Welcome to the show, Doug. Thanks so much, Carrie. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's so great to speak with you. We were chatting just before the show. I've been following your work for a while, so it's a real honor to have you on and, and be able to pick your brain in the area that you know best. I've been reading your book over the last few days since it came out and since I returned from my vacation. And one, the story that you opened the book with really hit home to me because I was at this event that you talk about the the big show the NRF big show in New York let's start there that was really a symbol that you share of the disruption that retail has faced yeah wow little did we know as we gathered in January of 2020 in New York City at the Jacob Javits Center 37,000 of us packed into the center over, I don't know, what is it, Kiri, like four days or something, three, three and a half days that you're there. And all of us, of course, oblivious to this sort of meteor that was traveling you know, through space and time and would eventually completely upend the entire global retail industry. And you know, the beginning of the book is just sort of reflecting on you know, I think we all sort of look at 2019 now as being the good, the good, the good old days, you know? <laughs> when life was kind of quote unquote normal and business was relatively predictable. But, you know, the truth is it really wasn't a picnic in 2019 either. There were tremendous pressures in the retail industry. There were channels like the department store channel, of course, that was under siege. Shopping malls were in peril. Brands were highly, highly leveraged with, you know, private equity debt. There was, you know, tremendous fallout and there were a lot of stores closing. We look at this as the good old days now, but it wasn't all rosy. But clearly compared to what ensued, it was relatively tranquil for sure. So yeah, that's sort of the taking off point. And then it was only a matter of weeks after we all cleared out of the Jacob Javits Center that it became an Army Corps of Engineers field hospital in the New York City area. Pretty spooky. Yeah. yeah and I, I like that story that you open with because it is sort of a concept that can be extrapolated a bit more. Like you said, there was disruption already sort of happening, but COVID really took that to the next level in that physical space. And as much as is possible, in this book, you're providing a vision and casting out to the future how COVID will reshape every aspect of consumer life, including retail. And this is a foundational piece of your work, not just in this book, but, but elsewhere in your prior works and the other content that you produce is that, to paraphrase, retail imitates life. Life doesn't imitate retail. So can you explain a little bit more about how this was true before the pandemic and some of the temporary and permanent changes to our lives, which 
impact and will impact our shopping habits. Sure. Yeah. You know, and the reason for that thought is that, you know, we're currently hearing in some circles that COVID-19 basically just propagated an acceleration of things that were already in play, you know? So all the trends that we were already familiar with and grappling with, COVID-19 just sort of, you know, lit the fuse on those and has accelerated them. And I don't really buy that argument. I'm not suggesting that, sure, we've seen an acceleration of volume of online activity. We've seen certainly consumers embracing digital in a way that they previously did not, especially in in the West. But fundamentally, I think that COVID-19 has also altered the future of retail. It hasn't just accelerated it. And yeah, I say that because, you know, throughout the ages, we have never really built our lives around how we shop. You know, it's not the retail industry dictating to consumers how they're going to live their lives. It's the opposite, that retail builds itself around our lives and the way we live. And if we look at this crisis, our lives have been, you know, inexorably altered and changed in a meaningful way. Hundreds of millions of us now working from home or doing some form of hybrid work. And guess what? We discovered that the experiment has been largely successful. Lo and behold, we can be productive without being centralized or supervised. Imagine that. And, you know, obviously there's been some discomfort with that along the way, but for the most part, we are managing. 26% of companies in the United States are now looking at downsizing their office footprints. Companies like Facebook have basically given their employees a license to work from wherever they want to work. In the San Francisco Bay Area, 66% of technology workers say that they would leave the Bay Area in a heartbeat if they were given the opportunity to work freely from wherever they like. And so on the work side of our lives, things have and, and will likely change forever now. The same on the education front. We've seen hundreds of millions of students struggling to educate online. We learn very rapidly that we can transfer information much easier than we can transfer inspiration to those students. And so this has opened massive gaps in the education industry and technology companies are already stepping into those gaps. You know, entertainment, communication, socialization, all of these aspects of our life now have been altered completely. And so, yeah, no, I don't look at it as a simple acceleration of things that were happening before. I I think that we have also jumped the tracks here onto an entirely different future of retail Mm. ahead. And double-clicking into that a little bit more, even recently, can you share some examples of how these life habits and where people choose to live and and how they're working and how we're educating our children and how we're getting from point A to point B, how that has played out in the retail category. Well, if you just look at, you know, in the book, I I, I share several examples of things that we, we might not always think about. But, you know, if we just take the issue of commuting, you know, this this sort of daily migration of people in and out of cities, and through COVID, obviously, this is this has not been the case. And surveys suggest that upwards of 30% of us believe that we will never commute again. We, we will never commute to the office. 70 to 75% of us believe that we will commute less, that we'll have some form of, of hybrid work. Now, on the one hand, you might say, oh, well, that's, you know, no big deal. 
really, that's a small shift in our behavior. And, you know, we can, we can just account for that with online sales. But the problem is, think about the media networks that have been built around transportation routes. Consider the billboards, the digital signage, these media, elaborate media networks that are set up specifically for that audience, for the million and a half consumers each day that are pouring or were pouring into a place like Manhattan. You know, that's just one example now of something that the retail industry is going to have to completely rethink. How do we now reach those same consumers with messaging? You know, so again, just one aspect. But, you know, in a broader sense, the other thing I talk about in the book is the idea that this is really society being pulled across the digital threshold once and for all. And the truth is, if you go to any city in the world, you know, whether it's, you know, Perth, Australia, where you're from, Toronto, where I'm from, New York City, and you stand on any corner in any major city and you look around, most of what you are looking at was created in the industrial world for an industrialized society. And retail was no different. Retail has been straddling this line between the industrial past and the digital future now for the better part of 30 years. And I believe that COVID-19 has, if anything, been the accelerant now that has pushed us across the, across the digital threshold. Now, on the one hand, that's been extremely tough for a lot of brands. We saw brands you know, clamoring at the beginning of this crisis to try and cobble together the means to serve consumers online efficiently, sort of get to the point of table stakes vis-a-vis -vis an Amazon. Some brands didn't make that transition. Others have struggled and some have been quite successful. On the other hand, for brands like Amazon, Alibaba, JD.com, Walmart, this has been literally a steroid drip, you know, 14 months of steroids that has made them stronger, infinitely more powerful and far reaching. And, and one of the points I make in the book is this, we sort of accept that as being, oh, okay, I get it. Amazon's the big winner or Alibaba's the big winner. But the problem with that thinking is that we have to appreciate that Amazon has also now for 14 months had to step back and watch the rest of the retail industry catch up. The rest of the retail industry has in 14 months potentially achieved 14 years of progress in terms of its ability to compete with Amazon. Brands like Shopify now, which essentially if you aggregate all the merchants in the Shopify universe and put them together in the United States, they are second in line to Amazon in terms of the largest marketplace. So this is not a picnic for Amazon either. And my belief is this is now pushing Amazon and others, you could argue Alibaba, JD.com and others, into a new era of their own evolution. And this is where these brands now are going to start looking like any apex predator through evolution. They need higher nutrition food sources. They need more food and they need more of it in order to meet new shareholder expectations, new customer expectations, and a new competitive reality. So what are they going to do? My belief is, and we're already seeing this, this isn't just me sort of, you know, putting a finger to the wind to determine what's going on. This is already playing out. These brands are moving into categories like banking, education, transportation, shipping, healthcare, incredibly lucrative categories that are also highly vulnerable to disruption. And if we just look, for example, Kiri, at Amazon's foray into healthcare alone, over the last three years, Amazon has launched nine concerted initiatives to essentially come in 
and just completely upset the healthcare industry. They've opened an online pharmacy. They're opening digital clinics for their employees and Berkshire Hathaway employees. They're opening physical medical clinics for their employees. They're building out apps, healthcare apps, you know. So they are going to essentially evolve from being what we would have considered to be a retail competitor, quote unquote, although that's debatable, to becoming an apex predator, to becoming essentially a utility company in the consumer's life. And five years from now, it's not hard to envision when you look at the work that they've already done in all of these areas, it's not hard to envision a world where not only is Amazon shipping our groceries, our running shoes, and you know we're watching Amazon movies at night, but they're also our healthcare provider, our child's education platform, they have the insurance policy on our car, our automobile, our credit cards, our savings accounts, our checking account. The list goes on and on. And so that is the new competitive reality that retailers are stepping out into is that Amazon has become essentially a life ecosystem, a bubble that they put consumers under. And now it's everybody's job to try and pull those consumers out of that ecosystem. Wow. Mic drop. <laughs> That sounds much like the subplot of that Disney movie, Wally. Have you seen that about the robot? I don't think I okay. caught that one. It's a dystopian future where humans have evacuated Earth and are living on a, a space shuttle and robots are trying to clean up the planet. And there is a central universal corporate entity that takes care of all these humans and ostensibly brought the whole crisis down among down on earth called buy and low which took some of its spreading cues i think from walmart but amazon is the more likely contender for that analogy actually i'll tell you something that i've noted and my world is the amazon marketplace ecosystem and other online marketplace ecosystems like walmart and instacart and that is that Amazon has their key stakeholder since since 1997 has been the customer. And this year in Jeff Bezos' letter to shareholders, a new primary stakeholder was announced, which is employees and these sort of frontline essential workers that kept things going during the pandemic. And there's been some, some recognition and appreciation shown for those people in that context for not the first time, but not to that degree, when essentially the motto of Amazon changed from Earth's most customer-centric company to the safest employer or something like that. So now there are two key stakeholders there. And in my world, which is branded manufacturers who sell to Amazon or on, on Amazon as well as to brick and mortar retailers, that stakeholder has never been given the same amount of, of recognition. The brands and resellers and distributors who supply product on Amazon don't get that kind of recognition in publicly from Amazon. And it's the Shopify effect that I'm seeing play out for brands where now there is, there's, there's a better option that's popping up, which is having a direct relationship with your customers and, and the toolkit that's essential for that. 
And just one recent example, last week, Amazon unveiled a, a new tool to help brands connect with customers on, on Amazon. But the catch is, and the wording of this was very, very interesting. It's not, hey, brands, you can connect with your customers now. It's, hey, brands, you can connect with shoppers who have followed you via your Amazon store. There's nothing about your customers. It's always Amazon's customers. But my point is, you know, Amazon may have Apex Predator status and now be needing to look at other categories to get more oxygen. But within that original sort of ecosystem, they are being disrupted by other marketplaces that are gaining traction like Instacart and Walmart and and new ones that we don't even know of yet and also Shopify. Every Amazon seller is familiar with the importance of having the capital to seize growth opportunities. That's why Payoneer, the sponsor of today's episode, developed their working capital solution specifically for online sellers. Payoneer's Capital Advance offers e-sellers selling on Amazon and Walmart up to 750k advancement instantly loaded, a gradual settlement collected from future marketplace receivables, always leaving you some funds to manage the day-to-day and an attractive fixed fee. Skip the credit checks and learn more about bringing your e-commerce vision to life by visiting payoneer.com funding. Again, that's payoneer.com slash funding. You'll even get a special 10% fee rebate on your first offer. Right. And this is precisely their dilemma. And so a few things. You made a lot of really good points. And so let's unpack them. First of all, yes, Jeff Bezos said, we're going to be the first company to vaccinate its entire supply chain. That was the statement. That was sort of the, the news hit. And so... When we started, th- I started thinking about that. What does that? What does that mean exactly? And and the fra- the fact of the matter is, beyond getting employees vaccinated, I think there's a broader meaning in Bezos's mind around this idea of vaccinating the supply chain. And what I think it means is really replacing as many parts of that supply chain with technology as possible. Whether that's a self-driving autonomous vehicles that are delivering packages to neighborhoods, whether that is robotic picking technology in their warehouses. I believe that if we look at what Amazon is doing, as opposed to what they're purely saying, I think that what we see is a company that really does not have tremendous value for their employees. Really, why else would you suppress any sort of union activity as they have done? I think it was in Alabama that they they wound up crushing a, a union effort to organize employees and to protect employee rights. So I think the jury's out in terms of what the true motivation is there. I think that some of this was a deflection of of an awful lot of really bad PR for Amazon about conditions in their warehouses for, for employees, the work culture at the company. So I'm on the sidelines um, with that. In terms of the pressures that they are feeling, you're absolutely right. I mean, the once dominant Amazon, the Amazon that everyone else was trying to copy is a bit of a, a shadow of itself now. And in fact, if we were having this conversation even five years ago, Kiri, I would have said, that the you know the winds of innovation in the retail industry were still sort of blowing west to east and that most of the stuff we were seeing in asia was sort of a facsimile of something in the west so yuku was china's youtube tencent was china's facebook 
Alibaba was, or JD.com rather, better example, was sort of China's eBay. But I wouldn't say that today. I would say just the opposite. I would say that the winds of change are blowing east to west. And if we look at the moves that Amazon is now making, saying to its vendor partners, hey, we'll, we'll share data with you. Well, that's straight out of Alibaba's playbook. Alibaba has been much, much more open with brands about the sharing of data, the sharing of the customer relationship, the ownership of that customer relationship, and the ability to build their own brand presence in keeping with their brand values on the platform. So Amazon now is beginning to mimic Alibaba. And we even saw this in the summer when Amazon launched an effort to try and get fashion retailers and luxury brands onto the platform in a product that looked a lot like and looks a lot like Alibaba's Tmall Luxury Pavilion. So now all of a sudden you're right. Amazon is a bit on the defensive and all the more reason now for them to want to achieve this broader life ecosystem that includes things outside of consumer goods, because if they can get there, if Amazon becomes about your healthcare and your, and your child's education and your banking, then they can literally afford to run the marketplace at a break even. Mm. And that's when they change the game for everybody. At that point, they don't care if they make any money. The products are just breadcrumbs to draw consumers into the ecosystem. And at that point, if you're Walmart, you're going to have to recalculate because that's that's a big problem. Wow. That's a powerful quote. The, the products are just breadcrumbs to draw people into the ecosystem. If you look at Amazon not like a a retail company, like a technology company, that makes a lot of sense. This user data, (laughs) they can sell that to advertisers, which is a very profitable revenue stream for them. And they are the third largest advertiser and gaining ground against Facebook and Google. And yeah, to your point, education, transport, healthcare, insurance, all all these other categories, that data is very powerful. If I, if I can get that part of your life, yeah, I'll give you a free pair of running shoes to get your health care. No problem. You know, and, and I think that's the calculus here that, you know, Amazon recognizes now that it's, it's literally time to go to the next level. And I think that's part of the reason that Bezos has stepped back now. I think he recognizes that the company is into a completely different phase of its own evolution. Well, amazing. Just changing gears a little bit here. I think we will get back to talk about Amazon anyway with this with this question. But one thing I love about resurrecting retail is all the context that you bring to retail and and the the sense that there's nothing new under the sun. That there's there's been cycles in the long history of retail that have repeated themselves and some things that we can learn from those. One concept is two concepts that we consider pretty new and and certainly are top of mind for brands that I speak with are private label brands that are developed by retailers like Target or like Amazon and the direct-to-consumer business model. Can you talk to why those two concepts is not are not as disruptive as they are often categorized to be? Yeah, it's always funny to me that we you know we talk about direct to consumer in particular as though it's some sort of strange animal that that we've never seen before. But I mean, the fact of the matter is, if we go back, you know, to if we only go back a few hundred years, everything was direct to consumer, right? The maker of things and the seller of things prior to the industrial revolution and the scaling up of sort of the industrial retail machine 
makers made things and they sold them to people and they made them in a in a bespoke and personalized way and they oh by the way they had all kinds of data on their consumers they knew their name they knew their children's names they knew where they lived in the town they probably had a more conspicuous level of data than google has today about us if the truth were known but they also had a level of trust with their with their customers you know if they found a product somewhere that sold really well in their local market then they would knock it off and they would make it a private label product you know so no none of these things are entirely new at all the industrialization of retail was really the aberration it was the migration of people into major cities. It was the scaling up of manufacturing. It was the separation of manufacturing from distribution. This whole notion of retail distribution in order to penetrate a market and third-party sales, all these things were a product of the Industrial Revolution. And so what we are feeling is not the pain of the departure. We're feeling the pain of the hmm. return to the way commerce was intended to be from the very beginning. And that's what's freaking people out, is that the industrial tactics and strategies that we used for hundreds of years aren't effective anymore. And so we've, you know, we're trying to get off the crack, so to speak, of the whole industrial retail media complex that we've lived with for the last several hundred years. Mm. As we wrap up here today, Doug, what message do you want to share with, with listeners to give some, not hope for the future, I think that where a lot of commentators are saying we're on the cusp of a whole new and exciting world that, that's, that's reimagined sort of a, a roaring, roaring 40s. What message from your research do you want to share with brands out there that you think is not, has not been spoken to enough? Sure. So, when I wrote this book, I said to myself, you know, this cannot just be an inventory of the wreckage. The purpose of writing this book is not to simply point out how devastating this has been. It is not to point out how daunting the challenges are, although the book, yes, does that, but it's also to serve as a roadmap to help brands navigate to a point where they can not just survive this crisis, but they can literally thrive abundantly in the shadow of an apex predator like Amazon. And so what I determined through research is this, Kiri, when you get right down to it, most of the brands that we see around us today, if you go into a shopping center, if you're able <laughs> somewhere in the world to do that today, if you go into a shopping center and you look at most of the brands in that shopping center, very few of those brands occupy what I would point to as being some sort of meaningful place in the heart or the mind of consumers. Most of them are just sort of noise in the marketplace. They exist, they sell products, but they don't really have that sort of linchpin position amongst consumers. And even more importantly, very few of them answer a very specific question on the part of the consumer. And my belief is that in order to withstand the future and the, and the competitive landscape that brands are going to be emerging into, every brand needs to revisit its fundamental purpose. In fact, I think what I say in the book is that purpose is the new positioning. But I don't mean purpose from a social or an environmental standpoint. That's not the kind of purpose I mean. I mean, if your brand is the answer to a question, 
that a consumer is asking, well, what's the question? What is the one question that you and your brand alone are the definitive answer to in your category? And so what I present in the book are 10 retail, what I call retail archetypes, archetypal business models that I believe are not only going to be resilient against competitors like Amazon and Alibaba, but will actually allow brands to begin to thrive by focusing very clearly on what that question is that consumers are asking and on being the answer to that question, and then engaging consumers with a full media ecosystem that draws them in, draws them into the brand, galvanizes a relationship with them, delights them, informs them, entertains them, inspires them, and makes them a customer for life. So it is a hopeful future. It absolutely is. And I sort of look at this whole thing, Kiri, just to wrap up like, like an old growth forest. I think that what, what COVID-19 did was it created, I think you could argue, an uncontrolled burn, perhaps, of the old growth forest that is the retail industry. And so, yes, we have lost a lot of the dead wood in the retail industry. Unfortunately, through this crisis, we also lost a lot of green shoots, young businesses that just couldn't withstand it. But I do believe in the final analysis, we are going to wind up with really, really fertile opportunities for new growth in that forest. And so if we lose a JCPenney in order to get 10 bright, you know, shining new companies that come to the market for this age that we live in, I think that that's, a, that's an even trade. You know, I, th I think we should accept that. This is the evolution of the retail industry. And we can all be part of that. Doug Stevens, thank you so much for joining us on the e-commerce Brain Trust podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Doug Stevens as much as I did. As I mentioned, I have read his book, Resurrecting Retail, which came out a couple of weeks ago, and I highly recommend checking it out wherever books are sold, including on Amazon, of course. And it's a great primer on what we can expect from the fallout from COVID-19. As Doug mentioned, it's not a blow-by-blow -blow analysis of what happened purely. It contextualizes some of the trends and changes that we're seeing and helps to provide a viewpoint into what's going to change in the way that we shop and how retailers and brands can get ahead of those changing trends as well. Check it out, Resurrecting Retail on Amazon or wherever you purchase books.